You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 46 through 55 this evening. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Uh, We are obviously continuing our Advent series. We're looking at passages from the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel uh, as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we come to the Magnificat, or Magnificat, I don't speak Latin, right? This is Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, and it's called the Magnificat because in the Latin Vulgate, that is the Latin translation of the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church used for centuries, Uh, In the Latin Vulgate, the first word of our text is magnificat, meaning magnifies, because our passage begins with Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, and that's why it's become known as the magnificat. But a question for you all as as we begin, what is Christmas really about? And that sounds really cookie cutter in Sunday school, I get that, but think about that for a moment. What is Christmas actually about? In the world, you often hear that Christmas is about family, right? And it's about gift-giving, reunions, right? Um, People being estranged from one another, coming together. Uh, It's about good food. It's about showing kindness to others or any number of things. And those things are all really good. And I like them. (laughs) But I want to put this to you. Christmas is about grace. It's about grace. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God, right? God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ. And I'd say, yes, absolutely. But nevertheless, it is still all about grace. Christmas is about the grace of God appearing in his Son, Jesus Christ, coming to earth and taking on flesh in order to save his people and bring to pass all of the promises of God. So indeed, Christmas is about grace. It's about God's graciousness to save a sinful and undeserving people through the incarnation of God the Son. Christmas is about Jesus, whose very name means Yahweh is salvation. It means God saves. And since salvation comes to sinners, that is, those who only deserve condemnation and wrath and hell because of their wickedness, since salvation comes to sinners, it is therefore all about the grace of God. And so that's what the first ever Christmas song is about. It's about grace. This is, by the way, the first Christmas song ever. It's a Christmas hymn. Now, in my experience in the churches that I grew up in, I don't know what your experience was, but the Magnificat, Mary's song, did not get talked about very often. It just didn't. I've never heard a sermon preached on it growing up, but it should be. It should be thought about. The passage we're about to look at is jam-packed full of the grace of God, and it's a glorious thing for us to meditate on. Right? If you like Christmas music, right? if you're like my mother who listens to Christmas music in June, right all year long if you like christmas music you need to memorize this hymn of praise and if you hate christmas music you need to memorize this hymn of praise because it's about your god and about what he has done and will do through his son so i pray that as we walk through this hymn this evening that you would join me in rejoicing and praising the lord for his grace to us through his son now as a sign of respect for our god if you would and you are able please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of God, and I pray you receive it as such. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we humbly ask you to condescend to us and bless us now as we meditate on your word. Please, by your spirit, visit us and give us insight and understanding. Open our hearts and minds so that we might behold wondrous things in your law. Show us your grace. Show us our Savior. Show us your goodness and your kindness toward us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, now some context for this evening. Uh, the setting of this passage is actually found in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, though I didn't read it. I'd like to summarize it for you. Uh, in that passage, uh, verses 39 through 45, we read that Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who once was barren but is now pregnant with John the Baptist by a miracle from God. Right? And when Mary enters Elizabeth's house and gives a greeting, the unborn John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb, right? Now, this is something more than ordinary baby kicking. The scripture says he leapt in her womb. And why would John leap for joy while still a, 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 an unborn child? Why? Well, because the Lord Jesus had just entered Elizabeth's house because Mary, pregnant with Christ, had just entered the house. You could say that John, the forerunner to the Messiah, was actually prophesying about the Messiah from the womb. In his leaping, he was telling Elizabeth, he's here, right? So he was the forerunner from before he was born, prophesying about Christ. I thought that was great to think about. And then Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke a very famous blessing on Mary. You guys are probably familiar with this. She said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, full of, full of joy, bursts with praise and acknowledgement that Mary is the mother of her Lord. That is her king, her sovereign, her God, her savior. And following this joyous exchange from Elizabeth, Mary bursts forth with her own words of praise. Mary is so overjoyed. It's such a blessed moment. She's so overwhelmed with a sense of God's graciousness and goodness that she bursts into a hymn of praise to God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary can't contain herself. She must praise God for what he's done. And she says that she's rejoicing in her soul and in her spirit. Those terms are synonymous, right? She's using a very Hebrew way of praising God where you essentially say the same thing twice, but in different wording. And again, it's, it's to make a point. What she means is that her praise comes from the very depths of her being. It comes from her soul. It comes from her spirit. What's in her heart, as Jesus says, is now coming out of her mouth. 
right? It's now pouring from her lips, and it cannot be held in. So great is Mary's joy. She cannot contain it. And she says she magnifies the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean magnify like a microscope, right? A microscope takes something very small and makes it look bigger than it is. Rather, Mary means magnify like a telescope, right, that takes something huge and lets you zoom in on a certain aspect of it, like a planet, right? Mary is magnifying. She is making much of God. She's praising him. She's exalting in him. She's saying, God has been so kind to me that I'm full of joy. Now let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me help you to see just an aspect of his greatness and goodness and what he's done for me. I want you to see what I see. I want you to know what I've come to know. This is true praise for Mary. This is true joy. Joy in the grace and mercy of God. Joy in God himself because he is amazing. And again, this joy can't be contained. She bursts forth in praise. But what's the substance of this joy? Right? Mary does what a lot of um, psalmists did in the Old Testament. At first they tell you that they're praising God, and then she goes on to say why. Right? It's pretty common. Remember, Mary is saturated with Scripture. The, the allusions to Old Testament texts in this hymn, it's astounding that a 13 or 14-year-old girl, she would put almost all of us to shame with her understanding of the Scriptures. She's making tons, like in the teens, references in this short hymn to things in the Old Testament. And again, the whole thing is in a psalm style. But what's the substance of her joy? Why is Mary praising God? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is full of joy because God has looked on her, on her humble estate. Mary, who was nothing. Remember, she's 13 or 14 years old. She's a girl. She's from nowhere. She's from Nazareth. She's not done anything magnificent by the world's standards. She's a nobody peasant from nowhere. But she says God has looked on her. Maybe you're thinking, but God looks on everyone, doesn't he? Right? He sees all. He knows all. And that's very true. But looked on here in this context of praise means something like he's looked upon me and smiled. He's looked upon me with grace. With grace upon grace, we would say. He has blessed her. And he's seen her. He's seen that she is nothing but has decided in spite of her to do great things for her. And she says as much that God's blessed her. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Right? Now, why will they all call her blessed? You all know the answer to this, right? This is a Sunday school question. Right? Because she's the mother of the Christ. She's the mother of the Messiah, the Savior. Mary had the peculiar honor of being the mother of our Lord. Mary was honored above all other women who have ever or will ever live. I think we can all agree with that. But why would God choose her? As I said last week in last week's sermon, it wasn't because of anything specially good in Mary. It wasn't. While the scriptures show us very clearly that Mary was godly and she was a great woman of faith, she still hadn't done anything to merit any blessing or favor from God. And how do I know that? Because no sinful human being can merit blessing from God. Like the Apostle Paul says, who has ever put God in their debt? Right? Who, who does God owe anything to? Mary was a sinner like the rest of us, but God looked upon her and blessed her with this privilege. And she's recognizing this in the opening words of her hymn. And she's just shocked. 
She's basking in the goodness and grace of God. All generations, she says, will call me a peasant girl, a sinner. They will call me blessed because God has allowed me to conceive his son, who is the savior of the world. And we do recognize her as the singularly most blessed woman of all time, don't we? Like, just imagine for a moment what it would be like to have God handpick you to be the mother of his son. That's, that's amazing. Mary would deliver the deliverer. Mary would swaddle the Savior. From her body would come the curse bearer. She would feed the bread of life. She would help to raise the Redeemer. She would be closest to the King. She would call the Savior her son. Can you imagine? What grace from God to choose her, a sinful nobody, for this I said earlier that this hymn is about grace, isn't it? This is astonishing. Though there was nothing special about Mary, God had chosen her for a very special blessing, and that by grace. And so we say, as the people of God, we put our amen to her declaration that all generations from then on would call her blessed. But Mary goes on to say one more thing about God has how God has blessed her particularly. Verse 49 for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary says that the mighty one who is holy, that is God, has done great things for her. Again, he has privileged her. And she's speaking about her special blessing of bearing and giving birth to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But I think that this can be understood more broadly than just that she's going to give birth. It's not just about giving birth to this child. But I would argue that this praise is connected to what the angel Gabriel had said to her in the Annunciation in verses 26 through 38. That's where her praise comes from. It's not just that she's going to have a baby, right? It's not just about that she's going to have a child miraculously. It's who the child is. It's who the child is that brings her to praise. She's going to be the mother of the one whose name means God saves. She's going to give birth to, to the Redeemer and Rescuer of the people of God who will put away their sin and reconcile them to the God they've offended. She's going to give birth to the one who is the very Son of God, the Son of the Most High, as Gabriel said, as we confessed earlier, the one who is true God of true God, very light of very light, God in the flesh, a holy child. She's going to give birth to the long-awaited King of God's kingdom, the Son of David who will reign in righteousness forever and cause his people to dwell safely in the earth, the king who will conquer the enemies of God's people. It's not just that she will give birth to a son, but it's that the son she will give birth to is the Messiah. It's what the Messiah will do that makes her say, he who is mighty has done great things for me. That's why she's so blessed. That's why she can say God's done great things for her. It's, it's not just about, it's this too, it's both and. It's not just about her own special status as the mother of God, but it's about what her son will do for her that leads her to praise. God has very much done a great thing for her. God, her Savior, has sent the Savior. And we can sing this as well, can't we? You can sing this. God has done great things for her. And us, by sending his son into the world, for he has saved us as well. Know this for a fact. Mary's song can be our song if we share the same faith that Mary had in the Son of God. 
and we can say, he who is mighty has done great things for me. But now up to this point, Mary has been praising God for his grace, for what he's done for her as an individual, how he has blessed her specifically. But now from verse 50 through the end, Mary begins to speak broadly. She's no longer speaking about her particular privileges. She's speaking about God's grace towards his people as a whole, starting in verse 50. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is not just for Mary, right? His mercy is not just for Mary. And his mercy, that, that word is, is the Greek equivalent of his hesed, right? That, that's Hebrew for his covenant faithfulness, right? God's mercy, his faithfulness, his salvation, his grace, his covenant keeping, his tender compassion, his kindness is not just for Mary. It's for all who fear him from generation to generation. It's for all who fear him, like John Gill said, from Adam to the end of the world. It's for all of his people. The sending of the Messiah, this blessing is for everyone who fears the Lord because this Messiah, this child to be born is the one in whom salvation rests. The grace of God is exceedingly broad, right? More so than we can ever imagine. But a question here then is what does it mean to fear the Lord? Right? We, we need to know this. If God's mercy is for those who fear him, <laughs> what does it mean to fear him then? Because we want mercy from the Lord. Well, know this, as the Puritans would say, it's not a servile fear. It's not a servile fear, meaning it's not a raw panic. It's not a terror kind of fear of God, though that can be appropriate in some circumstances. As the author of Hebrews says, our God is a fierce and all-consuming fire. He is to be feared with fear at times. But here it primarily means reverence. This is a holy awe of God. It makes you think of R.C. Sproul, doesn't it? The holiness of God, a great reverence for him. Those who fear God are those who acknowledge his position as the holy one. Those who fear God are those who recognize God as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Those who fear him are those who recognize who he is, his position, his authority, his superiority over all. God-fearers are those who know what they are, that they are sinners who deserve nothing good from him, but who come to him in faith based on his promises towards sinners. Those who fear God are those who seek after him, those who believe his word and humbly follow after him. To fear God is to trust and humbly submit to him. And Mary says that God's mercy is for those people. It's for people like that. How beautiful this is to hear. Sometimes we forget this. What a blessing it is for us as Gentiles to be included in the people of God. How beautiful is this? It's not just for Jews. It's not just for the ethnic descendants of Abraham. Even though the Messiah, according to the flesh, is from them. According to human logic, we would say that he only came to save the Jews. But that's not what Mary says. God's mercy is for all who fear him. Likewise, it's not just for Gentiles, as if God has forgotten forever the Jews. It's not just for men. It's not just for women. It's not just for the rich, as if they can buy his mercy. It's not just for the poor, as if they intrinsically deserve it because they have nothing else. No, God's mercy is for all who fear him from generation to generation. All who fear him without exception and without exclusion, regardless of their past. 
all who come to him humbly can expect grace and kind dealings from him. Imagine that. How unlike us is this God? All who come to him in fear, humble reverence, can expect kind dealings from him. And that's because the Messiah has come to ransom and redeem a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, both genders, every status, socioeconomic status, the king has come for them. A great, huge people. A quick note here. This is one of the big messages of Christmas, isn't it? In Christ, the grace of God has come to the world. Hear me, that means that this mercy is for you. It's for you. According to the revealed will of God, in his word, he does not desire that any perish. That means this mercy that is for all who fear him is for you, if you will fear him. Nobody is disqualified so long as they humbly submit themselves to God in faith. God's mercy is for all who will trust in him. Know that, because his mercy is for all who fear him. Now, before we go on, you should know that from verses 51 to 55, Mary begins to speak in the past tense, if you didn't catch that. She begins to speak in the past tense, and that may seem a bit perplexing, but the vast majority of scholars understand this to be what they call the prophetic past tense, or the prophetic aorist, if you want to sound extra smart to people. Right, the prophetic past tense. What that means is that Mary is speaking of things that are going on then, and or will be accomplished, or completed rather, in the future. But she is so certain that they will come to pass that she speaks about them in the past tense. That's what that means. Now this happens from time to time in the Old Testament with prophecies. Right? The prophets would speak as if something had already happened while they were foretelling that it was going to happen. And if that sounds strange to you, you should know that there is a very famous example of this in the New Testament that most of you are already aware of. It's a very famous verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, right, the golden chain. The Apostle Paul says this, And those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, glorification doesn't happen until the believer dies. We're sealed in glory, sinless. But Paul says that those whom God has justified, that's everyone who believes upon Christ, he also glorified. Paul puts it in the past tense. Wow. Paul is so certain of the believer's future glorification that he can put it in the past tense. Right? And Mary is doing something very similar here in our text. Mary is so confident in God that she says it is already, it's as if it's already happened. I love that. His grace and his power is so sure she can speak about it as if it's already happened. And remember one more thing. Because some of these verses may seem a bit weird to you. Remember the context of Mary's hymn. What's the context? It has to do with the fact that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. Right? Remember that context. So we are to understand these following verses in light of that. Okay, so what is God going to do through Jesus? What grace is God going to show to his people? Verse 51 says, He has shown strength with his arm. Now, this is beautiful. I love learning this. Right? Every time you preach a sermon, like you might already have known the text pretty well, but then you find like a little nugget that really sticks out to you. Th this was it for me. He's shown strength with his arm. For God to show strength with his arm means that he has acted in power to help. But who is he acting to help? 
Well, since verse 51 has no direct object of this help, we're justified to look back at verse 50 and see that since his mercy is for all who fear him, then he must be acting to help the same group. That is, those who fear God. In other words, believers. Again, to show strength with his arm is an Old Testament way to refer to God acting to help his people. Let me read three examples from the Old Testament for you. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, we read this. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 reads this. God is speaking. He said, Or has any God ever attempted to go and make a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Psalm 44 verse 3 says, For not by their own sword, the Jews' own sword, did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Mary is saying that God will act through Jesus Christ to show his power and save his people. And if you're wondering, why did I read those three passages to you? Here we go. What's amazing about this is that the vast majority of the time that this mighty arm language is used, right? And I just gave you three examples. The vast majority of the time that, that this mighty arm language of God is used, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to what God did in the Exodus. How God rescued his people from slavery and misery. How God came down, as he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. How God came down to set his people free and deliver them to the promised land. And now, this Exodus language is being used again. But in reference to what God is doing through Jesus. Why is that? It's because a new Exodus begins with the coming of the greater Moses. There's a better one. There's a better deliverer who has come. There's a new exodus. This chosen son, chosen to be the deliverer from the foundation of the world, is coming to rescue the people of God from their slavery to sin. He's come down to lead his people out of certain death in spiritual Egypt. He's come to free them from Satan, Pharaoh, if you will, that they might live to God. God has come down in his son so that his people can inherit what God has promised to them. The true promised land. Eternal life in the true land. An eternal kingdom. The church that is without end. Safe from all who would do them harm. Safe from sin. Safe from Satan. To live forever under the blessing of God. In this child to be born, the Lord God Almighty is stretching forth his mighty arm to save his people. And as always, he is doing it according to grace. Remember, he's saving sinners. Therefore, it is all of grace. But what else does Mary say that God will do through Jesus? It says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. I think it might be best for me just to try to summarize these verses. The proud-hearted, the mighty, and the rich... Here, all suffer what? 
condemnation and resistance and judgment from God. And since verse 50 tells us God shows his mercy to the God-fearing, then that tells us that in the context of this hymn, the proud, the mighty, and the rich are those who do not fear God. They don't respect him. They don't humble themselves before him. In fact, they reject what God will do in Christ to show his mighty arm and rescue his people. And so God resists them and rejects them. The proud-hearted and mighty here are those who think that they have no need for what God is doing. They're doing just fine, thank you very much. They're quite good people on their own. They'll be just fine without this mighty work of God. They're strong, so they don't need saving. These are the self-righteous and self-reliant. They have no fear of God. So God is not a savior to them. God is not anything to them. They don't think that they need him or his Christ. And Mary says, God will scatter them. Through Christ, God will scatter them. God will not gather them to himself as he does with his people, but he will refuse them and he will reject them. He will pull them down off their thrones. He will show them in judgment how weak that they actually are and how much they needed his mighty arm to save them. And they will be destroyed because of their pride and self-sufficiency. And the rich are those who are full of themselves. Notice they're the opposite of the hungry. That means they're full. They're full. Like the others, they are full of pride. They're full of selfishness. There is no humility in these godless rich people. And that's not to say that all wealthy people are godless. You can look in the Old Testament and see many righteous people who God blessed with wealth. But again, in this context, these rich are those who are full of themselves and full of pride. They think that their rags are robes and that their garbage is gold. And so God will send them away with nothing. They didn't come to him in fear, in reverence, in humility. They did not come to him weak, miserable, and needy. And so they will have nothing because they did not come to him for anything. But oh, what blessing for those who fear God in these verses. Those who are hungry, who with an open mouth cry out to God to fill it. He will fill them to the full. That's what Mary says. He will fill them with every good thing in Christ. Those who recognize their emptiness, he will give true righteousness through his son. He'll fill them with righteousness. He will give them the forgiveness of sins. He will fill their spiritual bellies because they have hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Because they've looked to him as their provider and their rescuer. And he will exalt the lowly. Those who know that they are nothing. Those who have submitted themselves to him, abasing themselves before God, Mary says, they will be raised up. How? I think they will be granted the privilege of being called his children. He'll raise them up. Mary's saying that through Christ, God will make paupers into princes and beggars into kings because they have feared him. And they have waited for him to show his mighty arm and save them. What an amazing reversal. Now these spiritual realities will be brought to pass for sure. God will act in Christ to make these things happen. But I think there are earthly eschatological realities spoken of in these same verses. 
I think, and it's debatable, but I think that we're supposed to see spiritual truths here that I've laid out for you, no doubt. But I think that there's also a real, true future shift in things that God is going to bring about through his son that Mary's prophesying. Like, like in-game, in-goal stuff. Not just the spiritual goods, not downplaying that, but that there are tangible, earthly things that are going to happen as a result of the reign of her son. And I say that because with the coming of Messiah comes an eventual new order of things in the world. Because with the Messiah comes the kingdom. And Mary, a good Jew, knew that. The kingdom is coming with her son, the son of David. And with it comes a reversal of things for the people of God on earth. The godless mighty and proud and the godless rich will be dethroned and brought to nothing. But the humble and God-fearing will be raised up in the future. The Messiah brings the kingdom of God when he comes. And I sound like I'm beating a dead horse. I know that, but you need to see this. The kingdom that he brings is the kingdom that Daniel says will crush all the kingdoms of the world and will grow into a mighty mountain that fills the entire earth. We don't think about that that much whenever we think about the incarnation of the Son of God, do we? But with the king comes the kingdom, and the kingdom conquers the world. The stone cut without human hands will crush the kingdoms of the world where the godless oppress the righteous. And Mary looks forward to a day where those godless kingdoms who stood with their evil ways will be brought low and in their place will stand a kingdom of righteousness and peace and goodness for God's people. There will eventually be earthly results from the coming of the Son of God. There will be peace on earth. There will be righteousness on earth before long. It's a certainty. Mary speaks about it in the past tense. This will be the result of the conquering king's kingdom because he brings it with his advent. But why is this? Why do these graces come that we've considered? Why will God do these things? Why will he show mercy to his people? Why will he save the world through Jesus? Read verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary says that God will help his people. He will do these things because he remembers his covenant promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. God will do these things Because he remembers the mercy that he spoke to Abraham roughly 2,000 years before this moment. 2,000 years before the Christ was born. What are we talking about? You remember in Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised something to Abraham. He said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What was that a reference to? He's saying the serpent crusher, the one who will bless the world and bring peace, is coming through your line, Abraham. God promised the one who would bless the world would come. And now in Christ, God is fulfilling that promise. God spoke of this mercy to Abraham. Again, he gave this promise to Abraham, but that's not all Mary says. Mary says it was to Abraham's offspring as well. What does Paul tell us in the New Testament? Those who share faith with Abraham are the offspring of Abraham. Those who fear God are his true offspring. That is, believers are this true Israel that the Lord has helped. All that is to say, in light of the whole Bible, Mary tells us that God will act through Jesus to help his people, to save them, to bless the world, all of his people, whether Jew or Gentile. 
God is acting to save his covenant people. And why will he do it? Because he promised to. (laughs) He's going to do it because he said he would. Know this, our God is no liar. He is not like us who break promises. He's faithful to all that he says. I love this. R.C. Sproul put it this way. God does not know how to forget. That's good. God does not know how to forget. He always remembers his people. He always remembers his promises. He always remembers to be faithful. He promised a savior. And then he sent one. He promised salvation. And then he accomplished it through Christ. He promised to fill his people with good things. And in Christ, he has done it. He promised to change the order of things in the earth. And through Christ, he will do it. Our God remembers what he promised. As I said earlier, Christmas is about God's grace. And in this hymn, we see that Christmas is about God's grace to remember and fulfill what he has promised. To remember and do what he has spoken to his people. Again, our God does not know how to forget. And at Christmas time, we remember that to the full. And we rejoice. So believe and rejoice. Humble yourself before the Son of God and rejoice in what God has done and will do through Him. Christian, rejoice in God's grace to you. Rejoice in His grace to send a Savior. In His grace toward the humble. In his grace to give a reversal of fortune for his people. Again, just real quick, this is, I'm going off the notes. We look around at our world, and as believers, we are quite down often, aren't we? But we forget that Christmas is not just about our individual salvation, but that the kingdom has come, and God promises a great reversal in history. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God's grace will ensure that it happens. He keeps His word. Rejoice in His grace that He doesn't lie. And that He'll give you everything that He promised. God promised salvation. He promised a deliverer. And then He made good on it. He will accomplish what He said. So my application for you is to say along with the faith of Mary... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much that we remember, not just from the sentiments of Christmas, but that we remember because of your word that you're faithful. We we remember that you promise good things and you've accomplished them and the things that are yet to be accomplished are a certainty. So much that we can speak of them as if they've happened. We thank you that in Christ you have shown us grace upon grace and we rejoice in you. Have mercy upon us, Lord, those who fear you. And continue to encourage us in your word. Again, God, you command us in your word to rejoice. So I pray that you would fill us with joy as we meditate on Christ our Lord. And lead us into worship, we pray in his name. Amen.